Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your hosts, Chris Jennings and Dr. Mike Brazier. Joining me today on today's podcast is my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Mike, how are you? Doing well, Chris. Good to be here. Today, we have a really, really fun topic. And I know you and I have gone back and forth on this about how we're going to approach this. Um, Today's episode is called Fact or Fiction. That's right, folks. It's everybody's favorite game show where we separate the forgeries from the real McCoy. Sometimes the waters can get a little muddy, but have no fear because our authors of accuracy, our legends of legitimacy, our white knights of certainty, and our educators of exactitude will set the record straight in today's edition of Factor Fiction. Feel free to play along at home as we strip down the rumors and reveal the naked truth in all its glory. This is Fact or Fiction. Holy Mallard Drake, that was an introduction. Hey, Mike, why don't you go ahead and just introduce where this idea of this show came from? Sure, Chris, be happy to. This idea originally, I think it's something that you and I had thought about doing for quite some time, just maybe dispelling some myths that may be out there, whether related to biology or whether related to anything within the organization. And then we kind of sat on that idea for a while. But then last year, maybe it was the end of the of season four, the end of last winter, we received some feedback from one of our listeners. And the the, the gentleman made the comment to us that, hey, I'm, I'm a new waterfowl hunter. I really enjoy waterfowl hunting. I like the community. I I hear a lot of things from a lot of my friends about some of the some of the things that Ducks Unlimited is doing, and maybe they're not good things, and maybe they're the cause of some of the problems that we're hearing or we're seeing. And I really don't know if I should believe them or not. They just sound too kind of far-fetched. This is what the gentleman was saying in, in his note to us. And so he was basically asking, can we address some of these myths or some of these accusations, you might say, Mm -hmm. that he is hearing. And this is, it's not something that has just come up right with this particular individual. We can go back through time and there's always stories and rumors and conspiracy theories about who's doing what. And, and so that's the case in, in this particular situation where the guy was like, Hey, I don't want to believe these, but I need somebody else to to give me some information to show me why this is not true. Or if it is true, let's talk about it. So that's yeah. the genesis of what we're doing here. Some of this will relate, as I said, to an organizational kind of perspective. Some of it, though, will relate to biology or other aspects of waterfowl management. Yeah, no, and I think that's awesome that that the listener, rather than just take what someone in a duck blind is saying for granted, this particular person is doing a little bit of research on their own and is willing to ask someone at Ducks Unlimited. And I think it's great that they reached out to, to someone like yourself who does have that, you know, science background. And, um, you know, and I just wanted to share before we kick this off, you know, this is something that you and I, like you said, we've talked about. And one one thing that I wanted to kind of point out is there are a lot of what I would consider false narratives out there about even biology, which is like, yeah. what, you know, we did the, actually we did the myth busting on the red leg mallard. That's right. The northern mallard. There's also the mating systems of waterfowl. A lot mm-hmm. of people assume that all waterfowl mate for life. So those types yeah. of things also uh, fall into this category. Yeah. And then you have just, you know, things that are so irrational. And I wanted to share this story. Uh, you know, I've, I've worked here at DU for almost 15 years. And my phone rang in my office one day and I answered it. And there was a gentleman on the other end and he was an older gentleman. And he immediately went on the attack and and said, I don't know why Ducks Unlimited 
is heating the Great Lakes. And that's where all your money is going to, is to heat the Great Lakes. And he went on with me. I mean, he was yelling at me for a good five minutes before I even got a word in. And and the, on the first thing I asked him was, have you ever been to the Great Lakes? Do you know how big these bodies of water are? And he was like, nope, but my buddy told me that that's how yeah, it always starts. Sure. And I really didn't know what to say in that regards because that kind of mentality was really so irrational that it's yeah. hard to come back. Like, yeah, man, that's just not possible. Yeah. And that was finally, I think, my final answer. But some of these are a little more complex than that yep. and certainly not irrational by any means and definitely need to be addressed. So, Mike, let's start out with this first one. And this is uh, one that did come from the listener, mm-hmm. I believe, that Ducks Unlimited only works works on private land and big, rich duck clubs. Is that fact or fiction? That is... That is going to be fiction. And, and and you're right. That is almost word for word one of the one of the items that the that the gentleman offered in his comment last year, uh, wanting us to to address that. That's one of the things that he hears. And I, I think it's important that we not kind of come off as condescending in any of this. That's not why we're doing this. We're wanting legitimately to provide the information that th- in this particular instance this gentlemen and then others like him can think about and say, okay, well, that makes a little more sense, you know, when you really stop yeah. to, to think about it. So that's that's the way we're, we're coming at this. So uh, does Ducks Unlimited work only on private land? The, the answer to that is no. Uh, we do work on private land. That is that is also not disputed, and we would never dispute that. Um, we, you know, you, you, we've, I think we've talked about this on a few previous episodes, when you look across the landscape where waterfowl habitats are, public land versus private land, uh, a lot of them are on private land. So I guess you kind of have to start with the basic premise that if you're, when you're dealing with a resource such as waterfowl or any migratory bird or any kind of animal that doesn't pay attention to private, you know, to, to property ownership, you have to work where that animal is if you want to sustain populations at large scales. And that is certainly the case with migratory birds, which travel across continents. So you have to work where the habitats are and where they can best be conserved. And so, you know, originally, if you go back through the history of waterfowl conservation, there was a time where the majority of the focus was placed on public land. And we've Mm -hmm. talked about this, I think, might have referenced some of this in some previous episodes, uh, uh, maybe even some of the harvest management episodes where we talked about the, or or NAWAMP, I guess. I think it was the waterfowl, North American Waterfowl Management. That's right, with with, uh, Dale Humberg. And so the idea was that up until, I guess, the 70s or 80s, we had mostly worked on, on public land. I say we, that I'm talking the larger waterfowl management community largely worked on on public land but as we learned more about where wetlands are where the grasslands are and began to realize that hey if we're going to truly sustain waterfowl populations over the long term we got to work on more than than public land and so one of the things that I'll that I'll do here uh, I, well I guess what I would say is that the North American waterfowl management plan really ushered in that new era of, of being more explicit, more focused on trying to truly incorporate private land conservation into all that we do within the waterfowl management community, and that includes Ducks Unlimited. What I'll do here over the next little part of this discussion is actually try to provide some, some statistics to, to back up some of what we're going to say here. 
So first off, when you look across the U.S., I can't speak to Canada. Let's mm -hmm. just talk about the U.S. I don't have statistics for Canada right now. But when you look across the U.S., the vast majority of the land in this country is privately owned. And it varies by state. It's not going to be a surprise that some of the states like Texas and southern states such as Louisiana, Mississippi are going to have 90 to 96% private ownership. Mm -hmm. So if you want to do conservation in those states, you don't have many options when it comes to a public land standpoint. So you better be thinking about ways that you can work collaboratively and on a volunteer basis with those private landowners. You also look at, uh, you look in the Western states and not surprisingly, a lot of those lands are going to be, or it's going to be a higher percentage of public ownership, right? Especially when you t start talking about BLM land and Bureau of Rec and, and those types of things, National Forest, National Park Service, so forth. Uh, but the, the bottom line is the vast majority of the land in this country is private. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 75% of all wetlands in the U.S. are on private land. If you're wanting to do conservation work for waterfowl, you're going to need to work on wetlands, wetlands and grasslands, but those wetlands, 75% of them private land, that directs you to doing private land work. Grasslands also, when you look up into the northern prairies, uh, you're looking at 96% or 98, 98% uh, private ownership in Iowa, 88% owners, private ownership in North Dakota. So the majority of it is on, on private land. So you kind of have to work there, right? Um, there's also been some work to look and see. Um, this was whenever I was, I was down on the Gulf Coast, working with the Gulf Coast Joint Venture. We looked across that landscape and asked um, how much of our waterfowl population objectives could be supported by public land. We kind of partitioned it out between federal and state. And if we look only at National Wildlife Refuge System, which is the, the primary federal landholding system there along the Gulf Coast, uh, in coastal Texas, the National Wildlife Refuge System would account for only about 15% of our landscape-level duck energy day objective. So only 15% from the public land that was there. And a similar statistic was found there in Louisiana. National Wildlife Refuge System accounts for about 10%, 11% of the landscape-level duck energy day objective. So that means you're going to have to make up for that objective somewhere else, and it comes from private land. Just right? for people who may not have listened to our duck energy day can you give a brief description of what that is? Well, let me just say, go back and listen to it first. <laughs> no, seriously, it is it is a measure of habitat that we need to support ducks. So let me just say it like that. It's our habitat objective, and we measured in terms of an energy value. One duck energy day is equal to the amount of energy required to support one duck for one day. You know, And so you can quantify how many duck energy, energy days are available in a given acre of a certain habitat yeah. type. So. Um, and yeah, so the bottom line there is that if you look across some of these important geographies, uh, most of the wetlands are going to be on private land and most of the food resources are also going to be on those private lands. So you need to be able to work on those private lands in order to consist uh, in the future for sure. I know you, you explained that it varies throughout the country. Can you provide any information on how much conservation work is being done on private land versus public land. Yep, I sure can. And, you know, not surprisingly, the percentage of our conservation work that occurs on private versus public land is going to vary among these regions kind of based on that background uh, private public land base, public ownership land base. And I, so I have some statistics here in just a minute, but 
but I guess before I get to that, one thing that I will point out is that we do have in some of our regions, we have biologists out there working in the field, identifying projects to work on. I can tell you in Texas, I think this is still the case. We had one biologist uh, that focused primarily on public land and mm-hmm. one biologists that focus primarily on private land. And part of the reason for that is there are different programs that may cater to one type of ownership over the other. Uh, There are a lot of private land incentive, voluntary incentive-based private land programs that Ducks Unlimited helps implement with our partners. A lot of those are going to come from the NRCS or, or FSA through the conservation title of the Farm Bill. And so the the specifics in those programs, uh, the the various details can be pretty can be pretty complex. So you have to spend some time uh, learning them and and specialize quite yeah I guess to say it another way specialize in their delivery. And so that's kind of why we have some of these in some areas have biologists that specialize on public land versus private land. But yes, our uh, one of our GIS analysts here did pull some numbers from our conservation database in response to to my question about, hey, can we estimate the amount of, of our conservation work that occurs on public private land? And it does vary across our four regions. We have four regions, the Southern region, Great Lakes and Atlantic region, Western region, and then the Great Plains region. And just at a high level here, when you look at the Great Lakes and Atlantic region, about 70% of that of our conservation work is on public land. So only 30% on private land up there in the Great Lakes. And in the Western region, is public land, so uh, a little more private land there in the western region. In the southern region, and this is going to reflect the kind of background public-private ownership statistic, in the southern region, about 36% of our conservation work occurs on public land, so the majority on private land in the southern region. And then if you go to the Great Plains, it's it's an even lower public, public land value or public land percentage 10% 10% of our conservation work occurs on, on public land. So 90% on private, right? Mm-hmm. And that is, again, it's reflecting where that concert, where those different habitats are. So what I can tell you is that there in the Great Plains, a lot of that private land is going to be associated with some of our grassland and wetland easements where the private landowner retains the ownership, but we just have an easement on it to conserve, protect those grassland and wetland values. So if you want to conserve habitats for for waterfowl, especially if it's in the protection arena, you have to go to the land ownership where those habitats are, and that's private land in that particular case. And that's why um, why such a high percentage of of private land. And then overall, uh, when you look like within each region, you know, I just gave you those statistics, but overall about 35% of our conservation work occurs on public land. So 65% on, on private. So where can people go to, like, if they just want to look at some of this information and, and I know we have some information on ducks.org for sure, but, but kind of talk about where people should go to look at, to see, and then, you know, use that as the kind of the ammo to shoot down some of these, um, fictitious accusations out there. Uh, where can people find more information on this? That's a great question, and I kind of have to chuckle inside whenever I, I hear you ask that question because I remember a few years ago, I 
may have made some Facebook post or I had, was looking at reading the comments from somebody else's Facebook post. And, then, you know, it's the typical comment, Ducks Unlimited never does any conservation work on public land in, in my state or you do, how about doing some, some work on public land in my state type mm-hmm. thing. So I looked at the state where that individual was from and I just, out of curiosity, Googled Ducks Unlimited conservation projects in whatever that state was. Well, lo and behold, first thing, the first re, uh, the, the the first search return was a link to our website where we talk about all the different conservation projects that we do on in that yeah. particular state. So I this person did I, not do their this research. this person did not do the simple thing of just googling ducks unlimited conservation projects in my state. You can go and find statistics relative to your state in terms of the amount of, of funding spent in your state, the n- number of projects that are being that have been conducted in your state, sometimes over a long time period, sometimes for the past year. You can also find on those websites articles or references to specific projects mm-hmm. that are underway. Our biologists, our communication staff work to develop that material and we post it for people to read about, learn about. So it's just very simple. Ducks Unlimited Conservation Projects by State, I think, is probably the title yeah. of that webpage, that overall webpage. And it's a drop-down menu where you can select your state, we'll take you to the page, and then you can do the research for yourself. So that's what I would suggest to people to, you know, if you're, if you are curious and I hope you are about the type of work that we're doing in your state, just go search for it. It's out there. Yeah. And if people just go to ducks.org forward slash whatever your state is, so it'd be ducks.org forward slash Tennessee, that'll get you to state fact sheets and information like that where, you know, and that's, that's always my favorite one when people say, oh, they don't do any work in my state. And then you look and it, and it actually, we have the numbers there that would show, like, let's just say, for example, um, you know, one state, but it'll show you that they only raised $2 million, but DU spent $5 million. So it's like DU is actually doing more you know, for this state than what that state is actually raising. So yep. that's always a good, you know, a good example of, of DU's conservation work. Yep. The other thing that I'll tease here, and this may be, maybe a couple of other things on this, this topic here, but the, we are moving forward with an interactive GIS kind of portal where, and I'm, I'm, I'll probably get the terminology wrong, but it's a, a, a GIS interface where you can go to your specific state and see the location of different projects and there will be descriptions, sort of call-out buttons that you can you can click on and it will provide you more information about that project. You can see what projects have been conducted within your area and you can scan, you can move the map around and scan and look. I, I do know that if you go to the, uh, the, the page that we were talking about, Ducks Unlimited Conservation Projects by State, and then look on the Kansas page, it provides an example of that interactive map. Mm -hmm. I know that is the type of map that will be rolled out nationwide here pretty soon. I don't know if it, I don't know the exact release date on that, but I know that's something we're working on. And that is just, just another way in which we're trying to provide information to our members, to our supporters, so they can go and see where we're working, what type of work we're doing, whether these areas are available to uh, for, for them to access. If it's on public land, chances are it will be unless the public land manager has, has you know, deemed it deemed it otherwise. Yeah, those are great resources. I know Kansas, Nebraska, and South Dakota have those maps up right now on ducks.org. So uh, people should check those out. But let's talk about this, um, you know, the DU only works on big duck club accusation. Like, how would you That's answer that? that? Yeah, if you were one. sitting there in a blind with this gentleman and he asked, you know, he said, I heard DU only works on big duck clubs. What would what, what would be your response? Well, the first thing that, that 
as a scientist, I would ask is, well, what's your definition of a big duck club? I mean, is this a big <laughs> duck club, someone that owns that owns private land and wants to do a wetland restoration, a wetland conservation project on their own property? Or are we talking like some big hunting lodge type thing? If it's the latter, then that's absolutely false. Uh, I don't, I, we don't have this kind of data broken down in terms of you know, how big of a land holding are you when we work with you, that type of thing. We don't, we don't ask that information. We don't care about that information. We care about working with people that want to do wetland conservation that aligns with our our vision. Uh, we do work with some large uh, some large land holding companies. Some some of whom are duck clubs. We also work with a lot of relatively small scale private landowners. It, it's all across the board and. And, you know, one of the one of the things, I guess, from a practical standpoint, a lot of the projects and programs that we use require some type of match from the landowner. So mm-hmm. if we're looking only within this private landowner space, from a practical standpoint, which of those groups of landowners are going to have access to resources to provide match? Sometimes it's a 10% match. And so if we're talking about a, a mil or at least a 10% match on some of these programs, if we're talking about a million dollar project, that means that landowner has to come up with $100,000. Not everyone can do that. Yeah. So the programs themselves, not they're not necessarily programs that Ducks Unlimited runs, but they're programs that Ducks Unlimited seeks or, or competes for funding through, like federal programs mm-hmm. or state like programs. NACA would be a great example. The The private landowner typically is going to provide up to or more than a 10% match. And so some of this is, is a bit self-limiting in that larger land holdings are probably going to have access to that to larger sources larger resources and may be able to compete a little bit, little bit better for those types of programs that's certainly not the rule you know mm-hmm. it's we we work with private landowners across the entire economic spectrum but the expectation is that for most of these programs they're going to provide some type of uh, of cost share and, and we certainly don't only work with with big duck clubs yeah let's go ahead and skip on to the next one because I think you did a good job of really covering covering, um, you know, that private land versus public land. Um, and there's tons of other resources that people can look at. You know, most state agencies have some really good information on some public land maps and things like that. And and even in comparison by looking at, at what, you know, DU's website in comparison to a state map, there's a lot of overlap there. On, and I'm just thinking of specific states and that I, I look at all the time. Um, and that's a good resource for people to look at. But uh, the, the next kind of fact or fiction question here, and it's, again, and these all came in from kind of a request from from listeners is in regards to the harvest information program, the HIP questions. Um, people are seem to be a little confused as to what HIP is used for, what you know, what it is. Um, so go ahead and just give a let's do a real quick brief overview of of HIP and and what it's used for. Yep, the harvest information program HIP is is the collaborative project collaborative um, method by which the federal government and the states collect data to estimate annual waterfowl harvest in the U.S. Now, Canada has its own way of, of collecting harvest information, but the Harvest Information Program is that program for the U.S. And it there are two components, I guess, survey components to the Harvest Information Program. Uh, I guess you, you might say that 
Well, one of the things that I will will say here is we had a two or three part series on the Harvest Information mm-hmm. Program with with Dr. Kathy Fleming, and Dr. Paul Padding. I think that was in maybe January of 2020. We encourage folks to go back and listen to that for all the specifics. So, the, w- nested within the Harvest Information Program are two surveys. One is the Hunter Diary Survey, and the other is the Parts Collection Survey or mm-hmm. the Wing Survey, Wing and Tail Survey. And so, those are two different surveys. Now, the Harvest Information Program, the HIP certification that you do at your point of sale when you're buying your license, that is used to establish the sampling framework. It's like the entire, it's the database, becomes sort of the database of waterfowl hunters from whom the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service can randomly select participants for each of those two surveys. Uh, The states are are hand-in-hand collaborators on this this data collection, or at least the the management of the Harvest Information Program. And so when you register for the Harvest Information Program certification, your, your your name and your license information, your existence as a waterfowl hunter for that year is entered into this database that then makes you eligible to be selected to participate in one or both mm-hmm. of those of those surveys, which I did not get selected this you year. Didn't. I've I, done I it have, for three years. I have never been selected. My hmm. dad was one time, but I yeah. never have been. No, it's cool to be. It seems part of that citizen science type deal. That's really um, cool. But you know, kind of explain to people why they have to register in each state. I mean, I think that's that's where the confusing part comes yeah. in. Is people think, oh, I already did my HIP registration on my Mississippi license. I don't need to do it on Tennessee. That's right. It's required. So HIP certification is required for for every migratory bird hunter ages 16 and older. Uh, I will say here at this point, double check the regulations in your state. We had a biologist from Nebraska that was on earlier this year, and he clarified something about the HIP certification, who it was required for in their state that I was not aware of. I want to say it was like, even if you're under 16, if you're a non-resident, you have to register for HIP. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if that was just for associated with this two-tier license system that they're going through, but double check to make sure. But I know for Every person age 16, every migratory bird hunter ages 16 or over, you have to register yeah. for him. And it's all online now, correct? Uh, and you still call them. Remember, you, you used to be able to call, and I don't know. I'll have to double check that when we get off. Well, I, so here's the thing. HIP is, it is a collaborative federal state effort. It is administered by the states. And, and Paul and Kathy went through this in great detail on all of the privacy issues that they had to work through mm-hmm. when they were asking the states to, when, when they were basically discussing how they wanted to implement this. It first came about in 1999. Before this, we had the old mail survey, um, multiple mail questionnaire survey, but then they transitioned to this new, new system in 1999, I believe it was. And so they had to go through all of these discussions with the states about how they were to collect the data. And the states wanted to have a role in it, I guess, for lack of a better word. So the states essentially helped determine how that data was to be collected for their their waterfowl hunters. Mm -hmm. So... I don't know that it's all on uh, all electronic or well I guess it would all be online now. I guess there are some states where you can still get it at a point of sale yeah. like from a retail store. Mm-hmm. We had uh, Larry Reynolds on last year talking about Louisiana transitioning to online only. Yeah. They were taking the HIP certification away from point of sale vendors because of some problems with that data collection, some of the ways in which the point of sale vendors were collecting it. Uh, so, and I know 
other states are kind of moving that direction where the only way you can get it is online. Yep. And Which is unfortunate for me because I always like making that phone call. <laughs> and whoever did that, record the voice recording was the greatest. The lady would always ask, did you shoot coots, rails, oh. or galanoots? <laughs> I, I, and I, was, I always thought that was so great. I was like, how do I get to be the guy who's like, hey, did you hunt doves in yeah. the 2009 I didn't season? even know there was a call-in number. Oh, I always yeah. Always uh, point of sale was all, or online was always it for me. Really? Yeah, I just remember that. It's, I mean, that voice is just so familiar for me for some reason. Oh, we funny. always laughed, but you know, my buddies, we had kind of a running joke where it's like, "Did you hunt ducks in the 2001 <laughs> season?" That's a great transition to. Do I have to register for HIP in each state in which I hunt? The answer is yes. yes. If you hunt in Mississippi, you have to get HIP certified in Mississippi, and and if then you go across the river into Arkansas or Missouri or Tennessee or Alabama, well, I guess you wouldn't go across the river in Alabama. But if you go to another state, is what I was trying yeah. to say, and and hunt migratory birds in those other states, you have to get cert- HIP certified in those states, and that is because they try to get reliable estimates at the state and flyway scale. And so the only way they can do that at the state scale if the, is if they know which states you hunted in. Like if you hunted in Missouri, you need to be in the database of waterfowl hunters that hunted in Missouri so that you can be eligible to participate in that, stur- in that survey so that they can then use your data for estimating harvest for the state of Missouri. And the other part of that is if you get selected for, if you hunt in multiple states, are HIP certified in multiple states and are selected for, let's say, Missouri. Say you hunted in Missouri and Arkansas. You're HIP certified in Missouri and you're selected to participate in the survey for the state of Missouri. You only enter your harvest data from the state of Missouri. You don't combine it with your harvest data from, from Arkansas. And it will tell you when you receive the survey, if you are selected for either of those surveys, the parts collection survey or the hunter diary survey, it will tell you in that communication for which state you have been selected as a participant. Mm-hmm. And I say which state, you know, it's a federal survey, but they're asking about your harvest in each of these states. Yeah. No, that's it's important, and I think that's and it's always just a, a good reminder. I mean, I think sometimes people kind of gloss over those questions because it's a part of that long process of getting your license, and most people are in a hurry trying to do it. Um, but it's a good idea to not skip over those important yeah. questions of did you hunt, whether it's rails or right. um, coots or doves or any any you know migratory bird in that manner. Another point of clarification here, just to to wrap this one up, a lot of people mistakenly assume that when they're answering those very questions at the point of sale Mm -hmm. or now online, that when they ask you how many ducks or of whichever group of migratory bird did you kill last year, it's usually like zero. I don't know what the numbers are. Is it zero to 10, zero to five? And then maybe maybe it's, let's just say it's zero to 10, 10 to 20 and greater than 20. That sounds about right. I'm not sure if those are the exact cutoffs, but a lot of people mistakenly assume that when you provide answers to those questions, that those answers are then what are used to estimate harvest for last year. That's not true at all. When you answer those questions, you are you are self-identifying as one of three different, in this case, one of three different groups of hunters based on the amount of harvest that you, that you experienced last year. 
the assumption being, and they've tested this and found this to be reasonably accurate, that your harvest last year is a reasonably good representation of what your harvest is going to be this year, at least on that relative scale. Are you going to be one of these high harvest individuals, a really low harvest individual, or someone in the middle? The reason that's important is that it you can you can increase the precision of your survey estimate the, the, the way you target those different groups yeah. of, of, of hunters with your, uh, with your sampling. I hope they're wrong about that because my last is <laughs> terrible. Yeah. So hopefully that's wrong for me anyway. But that's, an, that's a very important point. I know that, that Kathy, uh, Kathy Fleming gets that, that question or has heard that before, that people think those are the estimates of harvest from last year that, are, or that you're using, those responses to estimate harvest from last year. It's not. It's designed to put you into, into one of three strata that are then sampled at different rates. The final thing I'll mention here, Chris, and it relates to how you answer those questions when you're getting HIP certified in multiple states. When you're answering the questions about how many, whether you hunted last year, how much you harvested last year, you do so specific to the state in which you are registering for HIP. So going back to our example where you harvested, where you hunted in multiple states, if you hunt in Missouri, you're answering those questions relative to your harvest in the state of Missouri last year. And then if you get HIP certified in Mississippi, you answer those same questions relative to your harvest in the state of Mississippi last year. That's something that that's not communicated very well, very often. I get that question every now and then from some of my friends, uh, but that is the case. You answer the question specific to the state in which you are hunting or you're registering for HIP. And Kathy went into a lot of detail about all of these issues related to HIP, and I encourage folks to go back and find those episodes and listen to them. There's a lot of information there. All right, let me get one more out of you. Let's do a, uh, we're going to do a fact or fiction here. Okay. Also, just a reminder, these come in directly from our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> this one did. Uh, DU provides corn for managed impoundments, and DU hunts these impoundments. I don't, when they say DU, I'm, I'm not sure who DU they're. DU staff. They're okay. DU okay. staff. Yeah. Survey says. Survey says. That one is fiction. Big time fiction. Uh, this is this is a really interesting. Well, I mean, the whole corn side of it is is one thing, right? But it is a very good question because we work on a lot of projects across the U.S. and in Canada as well. And oftentimes we put up signage associated mm-hmm. with some of those projects that will include our logo, will include the logo of other partners, of Fish and Wildlife Service, the State Wildlife Agency, National Fish and Wildlife, whomever may be a partner in that project. Oftentimes, they will have their name and logo associated with a sign in front of that project. A lot of people, understandably, may see that sign and think, oh, Ducks Unlimited has a role in what I'm seeing behind that sign and what's going on this year. Like, let's say it's corn. Let's say there's a a, a sign promoting or, or talking about the restoration effort on a certain impoundment, and there's flooded corn back there. Or let's say it's a dry, moist soil unit. The Ducks Unlimited logo is on that sign. Some people understandably would think that we have some role in what happens on that property on an ongoing basis. That's not true. So here's how it works. What we do as an organization, our primary role 
is is that we work with landowners, public, private landowners, other entities that want to do habitat restoration or habitat conservation on their properties. And we, in most cases, our projects, if we're talking about like, we can take easements and other type of protection instruments where you're just protecting that that property from, from some type of conversion. Let's set those aside and let's just talk about our, our, our restoration and enhancement activities. What we do is through our engineers and our biologists, we identify wetland enhancement and restoration solutions, whether it be infrastructure such as water control structures, levees, pumps, whatever, any kind of other levee or, or canal clean out, all types of in- infrastructure activities that are necessary to either restore or enhance the performance of a certain wetland for its management for waterfowl. We identify those solutions. We design those. Our biologists and engineers work hand in hand to design those. Then we will seek funding for that engineered project, for the, the project that we're putting together. And once we secure funding, we will put that contract out for bid. We'll mm-hmm. put that design project out for bid. Then we hire somebody to come in and do the construction of that. Once the construction is complete, our hands are off. Mm-hmm. We don't, we are not responsible for the annual management or maintenance of those of those of those units. So this would be a good example of like even a National Wildlife Refuge. Absolutely. You know, that's, that's, I, I'm just trying to set the kind of paint a picture. So, as when someone pulls up to this National Wildlife Refuge and there's a DU sign, yeah. you know, DU and other partners are on this sign, but then there's flooded corn on the backside of this wetland project. Uh, I think that's where the confusion yeah, comes in sure. for people. And yep. I think that's a good way to explain to people, um, you know, that we're not a part of that management process as much as we are of the construction process. That's right. Primarily, it's the construction. And then once we are finished with that construction or the contractors are, we do an as-built construction evaluation. Kind of, we have people that make sure things are implemented, constructed as they were designed. We kind of have checks in place all along the way. A lot of these projects require some period of monitoring after implementation. So we don't totally walk away. We have to ensure that these things continue to stay intact and function as they were designed. But in terms of the type of vegetation manipulation, whether something is planted, when it's flooded, when it's drawn down, we don't get involved in those. Well, I shouldn't say we don't get involved. We're not responsible for those decisions. And I have to make that clarification because our biologists will participate in discussions about management. A lot of times, the, the and this is most often with our, our private landowners who are seeking our, our mm-hmm. assistance. If, it, if you're dealing with a state agency or a federal agency, typically they're going to have a biologist on yeah. staff or, or a complex with them that will be responsible for the management and will be managing that in the context of every other land holding that they have for waterfowl. So on, on public land, we have uh, much less say and and consultation on what they might consider in terms of management. That's But that's sort of the extent of what we do from a management standpoint, by and large, is, is just through our, our consultation. You know, they recognize us as experts in waterfowl habitat conservation and waterfowl habitat management because that, if that kind of training comes with the territory. And so they may ask our, ask our biologists what, what they think should be, should be done here. And our biologist's response should always begin with, well, what's your objective? As the landowner or as the property manager, 
what's your objective? And then once we know what the objective is, then our biologists can help them develop a management plan. We do that. We help develop a management plan. Uh, in some cases, some of those are required for some of the programs that we, that we help deliver. But ultimately, the annual decisions are made by and carried out by the landowner or the land manager who may be hired by, by a landowner. That is going to be the situation, and I've, I verified this, a half a dozen of our biologists across the U.S. I wanted to make sure that my understanding based on working in the Gulf Coast was accurate across other regions, and it is the story that I described where we do the infrastructure, and then after that, the management on an annual basis is left up to the landowner or land manager um, that, that carries through across the U.S., there are a couple of exceptions, and you actually brought one of these to my attention that I was not aware of. There are a small number of instances where we may hold a piece of property. That's another part of this. Ducks Unlimited Incorporated here in the States owns, you know, outright owns through fee title, very little property. We have a program called a revolving lands program, which I think we've referenced on a few previous episodes. I know Dr. Scott Stevens talked about it with Canada, where we will purchase land from a willing seller. We will implement some type of restoration on that, on that property. And then in, while we hold it, we may also do some management, whether it be wetland management or grassland mm -hmm. management. We may actually be the ones out there on a tractor. I say we, our staff may actually be the ones out there on a tractor, managing the water levels, those are going to be few and far between. Yeah, I was going to say, there's very few of them. And then what happens is that, I described it as the revolving land program, after we have held that property for two or three or up to five years and have successfully implemented the restoration activities, we turn it back around and sell it to a willing buyer. But the difference is when we sell it, it will have with it a conservation easement, a legal instrument that going forward dictates the type of activities that are prohibited. And that's going to be like prohibiting the drainage of the wetlands that we may have restored or prohibiting the conversion of the grass. And, that and we, we sell may a have lot restored. of these, like back to the federal government too. Um, you we know, do. I, there's they, some good examples in Nebraska, of those yep. of the WPAs, the yep. waterfowl production areas that yep. um, we either sell to the state of Nebraska or the federal government, which would they then they manage. And they also, all of those are open to the public That's right. for duck hunting. That's yeah. right. Then it becomes that pub, in, part of that public land estate. Yeah. So, yeah, and there are a couple of examples in, in Nebraska, I think, the Rainwater Basin, yep. where, where that is the case. And then we use the proceeds from the sale back to a willing buyer. Uh, it goes back into this revolving land program where we go out and buy other land from a willing land from a willing seller. Uh, it's In most cases, it's going to be uh, land that that is going to need some type of restoration, you know, yeah. or some type of, uh, whether it be wetland or, or grassland. And so that's the way that works. But those are few and far between. Uh, the, the general rule is, as I described uh, previously, we're an infrastructure and designing type of organization. We do provide technical assistance. And I think it's important whenever you hear someone, like it's kind of like the old telephone game that you play as a, as a kid, right? One person says something to, a, to whisper something into one person's ear, and then they whisper it to the person next to them, and then the next person, the next person, and three or four people down the line, the message has become something totally yeah. different. You can imagine the scenario, because I know how how our biologists interact with landowners. They're out there all the time because they, they develop these relationships uh, because 
because of the work that we do with them, because those landowners are good stewards of the conservation projects that we deliver, we, we develop relationships with them. And so we may be out there talking, talking with them one day. We get to know them really well. I, you know, this is just sort of a hypothetical that I can imagine. Maybe our biologists are out there on, on, on a piece of property of a private landowner checking on the project. Maybe the duck season is approaching. Maybe they see the boards aren't in the flashboard riser. Maybe they call the landowner and say, hey, we're out here. We were checking on the project. We noticed that you don't have the boards in. Would you like us to drop them in? We're out here. We can do that for you. The landowner may, may say, yeah. The landowner may then tell his buddy, his neighbor, that, oh, yeah, the guys from DU were out there and they dropped the boards in. You know, they were mm-hmm. out there, they, they put, the, put the boards in. That buddy may misinterpret that as Ducks Unlimited doing the management. Yeah. Ducks Unlimited is not going to do that unless they would have contacted, talked to the, unless they would have talked to the landowner. And like I said, that's a hypothetical situation, but knowing how our, conserv- our, our biologists are out there on the landscape so many days out of the year. It wouldn't surprise me if that type of situation comes up every now and then, but that's not the same as Ducks Unlimited making a decision about the management yeah. and planting of of, uh, of a certain type of crop or, or moist soil community on, on a piece of property. Now, with that said, you know, I did learn something as we were researching this particular topic. You know, the, the, the original question was whether Ducks Unlimited provides corn for managed impoundments. And while while that we do not do that, there was something here recently, at least within the southern region, where Ducks Unlimited provided free sunflower seeds. And so the details of that, as I learned about it, was that our development staff approached a seed company some years ago and asked them for a cash donation to, to Ducks Unlimited. The company at the time said, we can't do that, but what we do have is some excess sunflower seed just laying around. If you or your members could could benefit from that, then we, we could donate donate that to Ducks Unlimited. And so our development staff said, okay, sure, we'll accept that. And so then I guess we contacted some of our members, some of our partnering landowners, the ones that we knew that did manage their property for waterfowl for doves in this case is what this was geared towards and we provided those individuals with this free seed so there may be some experience some people that benefited from that they would know about it and would you know want to want to make sure we kind of clarify that but that was a situation where the seed company provided the the seed to us in lieu of a of a cash donation and then we then we just distributed that through our um, through our, our membership um, the connections here in the southern region. I'm not aware of any other program of that nature in any other region. I'm not aware of any other program like that ongoing right now and certainly not a program that is providing corn or any other kind of seeds for the management of waterfowl impoundments. So uh, nothing like that that I'm, that I'm aware of at this time. And, uh, and as far as, you know, kind of in the original question was, and DU staff basically gets to hunt these. Oh, now, yeah. this is a good one because <laughs> yeah. I worked here for probably five or six years, and I, I started getting all these emails about, you know, DU staff is hunting this, and DU staff is all the DU higher-ups have these big private clubs, and they, they get to hunt all these. And I'm like, at first I was like, man, no way. And, th- and then I started thinking like, man, these guys around the office must not like me because I've never been invited to one of these places. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like if somebody's no. getting to hunt this, it's not me. No. Um, but yeah, that that is actually fiction. But here's a really good example. And this is uh, uh, where I'm from in Indiana. I got a phone call just a, just a few years back. And, and a guy that I knew, you know, 
was like, man, you, do you guys are just tearing the ducks up at this spot? And I'm like, what are you talking? He's like, oh yeah, the spot, you know, down along the river that only do you people get to hunt at. And they're just, they've been just hammering on them for the last week. And I'm like, what? There's no way. And now he's saying that it's absolutely the case. And I'm like, no, that's not. So, so I started doing some research, called some of my buddies back home who, who are really in the know. And, and they're like, no, that's, I won't say his name, but you know, that's such and such as property down along the river. He has like 110 acres that he's putting in some serious, you know, management work in um and he's also on the local committee and he had yeah. hung yeah. one of those du yeah. flags on his fence of his property yep. so everyone drives by and sees a du flag hanging on this you know private landowners because he's a du supporter right and so that's how like you said the message can be confusing yep. and get confused um, and so what that turned into is a guy calling my office here in Memphis, you know, mad because the DU staff guys are just smashing ducks on this little property down there. And I'm like, yeah, I yeah. think we're a little confused there. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that that reality or that possibility that, yeah, we it's, it's sort of a tricky thing, right? I mean, from that standpoint, you think about it, it's like, well, maybe we shouldn't have all these people flying our DU flag, but that's just crazy. We, we love our supporters. We love our members. We want them to be proud of being DU supporters and members. We want them to display that logo. But, but then you realize that other people see that and you're like, oh, that's just the DU guys. But uh, no, it's that that's interesting. I can certainly see how that would be the case. But I guess to clarify, hey, Proudly fly your flags, display your decals, absolutely, um, all that kind of stuff. We appreciate your support there. And it, with regard to the the hunting, these impoundments, yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat you are, Chris. I worked. You for didn't D get invited. I, I have not been invited. I, you know, I, most of my hunting, to be honest, occurs on public land. Yeah. As the past weekend, it was on public land. As I grew up hunting public land, and um, er, Corps of Engineer land is mostly mm -hmm. what I have I have hunted growing up. But I've done other state and federal lands as well. Uh, and yeah, you and I both occasionally get invited on some hunts. It's rare. It's probably as rare as any other average waterfowl hunter out yep. there or as common, however you want to look at it. Um, so no, that's um, there is nothing within the Ducks Unlimited organization that privileges us to be, to hunt on these big duck clubs at least that I've, at least yeah. that I'm aware of. But if someone wants to invite you, you that, you'd you love and to go. I have missed the memo. That's we, right. We missed the memo, but actually that is, that is absolutely fiction. So yep. I'm yep. glad we knocked those out. Well, Mike, this has been great. Um, we ran through, you know, these factor fiction. I'd, I'd love to do some more of these because I think yep. they're fun. They're engaging yep. conversations. Uh, if our listeners out there want to send some of the requests for their factor fiction, they can email us at dupodcast at ducks.org. Our producer, Chris Isaac, will receive those emails and share them with us as soon as they come in. And we would really, really appreciate you providing some feedback there and just, you know, maybe some things that you've heard. And we'd like to dispel any potential, uh, any potential, you know, fiction that, that's out there. Or confirm the facts. Or confirm the facts. We will confirm the facts. Yeah, we'll have to include some of those as well because, you know, we don't want it to, to make it. We don't want this to be just a, hey, let's let's shoot down all the crazy ideas that are out there. There are some stories out there that probably have some merit, some element of truth to it. And we'll tackle those as well. And there you have it, folks. I think we all learned a little something today as our fearless host gave our collective noggins a little tune-up. Feel free to share these educational tidbits at your next duck hunt, cocktail party, or PTA meeting. And if you have any additional questions that have been rattling around your brain searching for an answer, then please email Mike and Chris at dupodcast at ducks.org, and they'll separate the baloney from the bona fide. Class dismissed. Tune in next time for Fact or Fiction. 
Mike, thanks a lot. This has been great. Yep, thanks, Chris. I'd like to thank my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier, for coming on here and shooting down some fact or fiction. I'd like to thank Chris Isaac, our producer, for putting the show together and getting it out to you. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on the DU Podcast and supporting Wetlands Conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Ducks.